0: Welcome to the Nutrition on a Mission podcast. I'm Dr. James Gieselman and my co-host is Coach Drew Sands. And together we bring some of the leading nutritional and healthcare providers, world-class athletes, and exercise and fitness influencers from across the country who incorporate nutrition in either their practices or day-to-day lives. Our guests share with you their stories of what led them to their passion for nutrition and how you can incorporate this into your life. Drew, how's it going?
1: James, I'm, I'm, I'm really doing pretty great. I mean, it's been a great week in Iowa. and It's, you know, 70, 75 degrees. You can't complain, so, um, you know, I'm excited to, you know, continue on this podcast and talking to some more guests.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's, the weather has been absolutely phenomenal. I wish I had been out to golf. Um but after our, you know, our last interview with one of our guests, like I'm just thinking about all the environmental toxins. So that's still in the back of my mind everywhere I am. I've already changed my coffee cup for the viewers that can see it. So I've gone away from the paper cup and I'm back into the to the aluminum. So um, but you know what else I've been doing? I've been reading a lot lately and I've been reading, you know, a lot. Of, so I'm still in the middle of all of my continuing ed because I because I'm up for renewal here coming up. Um, but I am reading more and more about chronic disease and how it's just plaguing the healthcare system. Like I had no idea, and maybe you didn't know, nearly two-thirds of all healthcare costs are for chronic diseases. And that may not sound like a lot, but when we're talking about patients, our older adults, so when we talk older, we're talking 65 and older, nearly 95% of them have at least one chronic condition, but 80% have two.
1: Yeah, that that's just crazy statistics. What are you know? What are some of the diseases that you're referring to and with those numbers?
0: Yeah. So when we're talking about you know the chronic disease, what we're thinking about is we're thinking about diabetes, obesity, heart disease, um, arthritis, and, and you know. But what the crazy thing is, even though we know it's costing us two thirds of all the healthcare budget, we're only willing to spend three percent of the yearly healthcare cost on prevention. It's it's yeah. backwards. Yeah, that really doesn't
1: make any any sense to me. It's, you know, I mean, we're getting, um, you know, so many cases of chronic disease, you know, that are coming through the offices. Why are we not you know putting more time and energy into you know those cases?
0: I mean, that's why I really like the focus of, you know, what, what we do here at Iowa Performance is that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make a lifestyle change, you know, I mean, through whether that's the gut microbiome or we're looking at food sensitivities, whatever that might be. I mean, we're trying to make those lifestyle changes to reverse things for long-term health. Like that's our goal, long-term health.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's what it has to be, right? It has to be lifestyle, it has to be diet, exercise. You know, it, it's gotta be long-term changes. You know, you can't live in the oh, short term when it comes absolutely. to health. And, and I mean, hopefully our guest today will, will hit on that a little bit.
0: Oh, I definitely think she will, you know, with the, with the way that, the healthcare system is going and managed care and insurance and, and for all the providers listening, I'm sure they're all too familiar with the insurance companies, but I am really excited for our guest today, Dr. Jamie Seaman. Drew, can you share with our, our listeners a little bit more about Dr. Seaman? I sure will.
1: Dr. Jamie Seaman completed her undergraduate training at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where she was a collegiate athlete for the Corn Oscars, receiving many honors and awards. She earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Exercise, Nutrition, and Health Sciences and a doctor of medicine degree from the university of nebraska school of medicine she completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology at the university of nebraska medical center serving as a chief resident she is a current fellow in integrative medicine at the center for integrative medicine at the university of arizona and a board certified ketogenic nutrition specialist dr seaman takes care of women of all ages with full range of gynecology and obstetrics in her practice She really enjoys taking care of pregnant patients and offers care, including low-risk, non-intervention pregnancies, and high-risk as well. She has special interests in ketogenic therapy, nutrition, and exercise. She is passionate about offering these services to all of her patients. She is a member of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, Metro Omaha Medical Society, and the American Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Known as Dr. Fit and Fabulous to those who follow her online, Dr. Seaman has been featured on NBC's Titan Games, hosted by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Her new book, Hard to Kill, Master the Mindset to Maximize Your Years, gives you a roadmap
0: that will help you achieve the five pillars of health. Dr. Seaman, welcome to the podcast. How are you?
2: Hello, I'm good. It's so wonderful to be here.
0: It's excellent to to have you on with us today. I'm really excited for the listeners to, to get to know you. So for the listeners that... May not be familiar with your work. Could you tell them a little bit about yourself?
2: Yes. So, uh, Dr. Jamie Seaman, I am an OBGYN day in and day out. That's really what I do. I work full time in Omaha, Nebraska, delivering babies and doing surgery and all the things that we do in women's health. But a little bit of my background I was born and raised in Nebraska, grew up as an athlete, went on to college, played collegiate softball for the University of Nebraska. I'm a huge Husker fan. So, if there's any Husker fans out there, go big red. And, um, pursued a degree in nutrition and exercise science before going to medical school, which is a little bit different than, you know, most of my colleagues that study biology. I mean, you, you really can have any undergraduate degree you want to get into medical school, as long as you take the prerequisites and can, and can sit for the MCAT. But, uh, I went to medical school. I had gotten married right before medical school. I'd met my husband in college and we wanted to start a family. So I ended up having two children, uh, excuse me, one child in medical school and two during my medical residency training to be an OBGYN and this shift from being a collegiate athlete to going to medical school was kind of the first time in my life where I was very physically active, you know, training multiple times per day to now suddenly sitting in a classroom and I'm studying for long periods of time. I'm in the library, the coffee shops, I'm taking tests on Saturdays. And it was the first time in my life where I started to, you know, really struggle with my own health. And after I had my children, I uh, was diagnosed with prediabetes and hypothyroidism. I was out in private practice at the time. And I was like, gosh, there's just something not right, you know, with this in medicine, you know, we really should be able to prevent these chronic diseases. And all I knew was, you know, how to treat them, but nobody had taught me, you know, how how to reverse them or how to not get them in the first place. And so I felt like a fraud as a physician here with this preventable medical condition. I looked, you know, into the, the glass crystal ball of my future, which is your parents and your grandparents. And I come from a long family history of normal BMI diabetics. And I just decided that I didn't want that to be my destiny. So I went back to integrative medicine. I totally shifted my medical practice. I totally shifted my whole life. And now um, (laughs) I'm on a whole new trajectory. So um, I, I wrote a book and I have an academy that goes with it. And I'm really on a mission to change healthcare for women. I have three daughters. And the area of medicine that I practice in, this is near and dear to my heart, because you're talking about taking care of patients that are literally growing new humans. So right. this is something that could really impact a lot of people for generations to come.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to challenge you. I'm born and raised in Iowa. I'm a Hawkeye fan. So oh, God. Go Hawks.
2: <laughs> sorry, you guys. This podcast is <laughs> over. <laughs> I figured that's
1: what it would come to, but, um, I want to take, take you back. Could you discuss your time as a division one athlete and kind of the role that nutrition plays into that lifestyle?
2: Yeah. You know, so I, as a high school athlete, right. Like nobody in my high school, we had weightlifting, but nobody told me, you know, about nutrition and what I ate and God bless my parents. They're just doing the best they can, but I grew up on a lot of fast food and, you know I always joke I eat a lot of hamburger helper, but probably without the hamburger. <laughs> um, but I show up at you know Nebraska and we have a nutrition department. So James was our nutritionist, and you know, so they walk you through the training table and they talk about eating the rainbow. That's kind of what they said, you know, here's the the grill over here where you get your protein. So there would be, you know, fish or chicken or steak. And then and then it was kind of like eat the rainbow, but there was also, you know, potatoes and pasta. And I'd been told as an athlete, like you got to eat your carbs. You got to like carb up fuel up, you know, for, for your performance. And so meanwhile, I'm also getting a degree in nutrition, right? So I'm getting a little bit of, you know, uh, education, (laughs) excuse me over here on the athlete side. And then I'm getting this degree and my degree, you know, it was a lot of, America has heart disease and diabetes and fat causes heart disease and the Mediterranean diet and dash diet and things like that are, are what you should do to prevent those things. Um, and so as I'm going through being a collegiate athlete, I'm training really hard. And I think when you lift weights and exercise that amount, you have a a pretty good level of resiliency, right? but I was also in college, right? You start drinking beer, eating Taco Bell on the weekends. I mean, let's be real. I wasn't following like the perfect diet. I was a collegiate athlete, but my junior year of college, um, our nutritionists sat the softball team down and they were like, you guys are the fattest team on campus. I'm not even kidding. This is, is like literally basically what they said, but I mean, softball players, right. They're like, they're not the leanest athletes. I get it. But but they wanted us to cut, you know, some body fat that summer. And so they handed us this program and this piece of paper, it was basically caloric restriction. It was like counting what you eat. And I remember it said for snack, you could have 50 goldfish crackers. And I like specifically remember counting out these goldfish crackers. And so when I left college and started to actually legitimately struggle with my health and my weight, that's all I knew, you know, it was like that's bad for me. Count calories. Eat less. Move more. I mean, but my experience as a collegiate athlete was amazing. I think there's so many things that you learn about yourself and learn about life being a collegiate athlete. And you know, time management, understanding wins and losses, how to bounce back, how to be resilient, how to be coached, how to be a leader. I mean, there's just my time as a collegiate athlete was amazing. But when it came to health and wellness, um, I had to unlearn a lot of things. Five, 10. 15 now, 20 years later. So.
0: Well, that's awesome. You know, we work a lot with the athletes drew being an assistant wrestling coach and, and, you know, we always get the wrestlers who come in and they want to cut weight and they think they know how to cut weight, but you can definitely tell it was, it was from like the high school mentality of, I just won't eat for two days or I just won't drink. Like, you know, really trying to change that mindset within sports. Um, I I think it's kind of difficult. I mean, everyone's so set in their ways and especially being a medical doctor, you know, I, maybe it's just me, but I don't know too many medical doctors, DOs. I mean, I come from a medical family that really emphasize nutrition in their practice. So what kind of, besides your undergraduate degree, you know, what after becoming an OBGYN made you want to go back for the integrative health?
2: Well, what I realized was when it comes to treating, not just things like heart disease and diabetes, but let's just say anxiety, depression, painful periods, um, you know, PCOS, you can name any medical condition and almost always some sort of dietary intervention will likely improve it because let's be real. Nobody's perfect. Nobody is out there eating, you know, the perfect diet. And food is something that we do multiple times per day. So when you talk about the ability to influence something, um, you know, quickly nutrition can be really powerful for that reason. And so I had this degree in nutrition, but I felt like I still had a lot of questions about, you know, how do I apply this in medicine? And so I went back and did an integrative medicine fellowship. And for people listening that don't understand what integrative medicine or functional medicine are. You know, basically Western medicine is diagnosing disease, diagnosing pathology, understanding the physiology of how that happens and why it's now abnormal and why it's broken and then how to fix it. But the fix is almost always a medication. So patient, uh, patient complains of burning in the chest. They have acid reflux. You give them medicine to suppress the acid. Okay. So like, I mean, that's how traditional Western medicine is, or there's a surgical procedure a patient has abdominal pain. They have cholecystitis, which is basically your gallbladder is broken. Take out the gallbladder, (laughs) you know? Um, and I'm not saying that these things don't have their time in place. I mean, how amazing is it that we can treat cystic fibrosis patients now, and they live a long time. How amazing is it that we can do a heart transplant when your heart stops working? You know, we can treat pediatric cancers like leukemia, Western medicine is incredible, but integrative medicine and functional medicine really dive more into either alternative therapies. So supplementation, acupuncture, Tai Chi, exercise, nutrition, you know, you name it. There's lots of different, different things that you learn and study in these programs. But I felt like it was a way to have more tools in my toolbox to be able to go into a clinic room and sit down with a patient who's having XYZ complaint and say, okay, listen, with my... Western medical brain, you have acid reflux. Um, now let's talk about how we can make this better. We could work on your diet. We could, uh, use medication or we can find somewhere in between. And then that's, that's the, you know, physician patient relationship where we have a conversation about what their goals are and what mine are and, and, you know, where we're going to meet. And, and I just think that it's just so much more fulfilling to have those tools, um, to be able to offer people. And, and really honestly, I don't think One is better than the other, but I just think that in medicine, if we don't start addressing some of these lifestyle factors, you know, 80% of people are living with what we call metabolic disease. I mean, it's basically, they're not living their lives in a, in a healthy way. Um, then we're just going to burn out our medical system. It's not coming to save anybody. And that's the unfortunate part is that for people listening right now on the other end of this, you know, podcast is that we all have to start to take a a personal level of accountability. Um, It's not that your doctor wasn't taught the right things. It's not that your doctor is being paid by big pharma. Um, They're not, I can assure you. It's just that we we've gotten it wrong and we need to get back to the basics and we need to get back to being accountable on a very personal level. And then we need our families to be accountable. And then we need our communities and we need to start teaching people. You know, it's not that anybody is doing this on purpose. Um, we just, we need to know better.
0: I mean, burnout is huge, you know, in the medical field. I mean, for all professions. And I feel yeah. like our story is very similar. I mean, you went the the medical route, you went to medical school, I mean, I was a paramedic for a long time and I, I joke that, you know, some of my classmates in chiropractic school didn't think that I was a, they, they probably don't think that I'm a true chiropractor. Right. Cause I mean, every, you know, each profession kind of has their own idea of the other and I come from the paramedic background. So if, if I have a fast heart rate, if I have SVT, give me some meds. If I need, you know, some sort of medical procedure, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just, I, you know, I went the more conservative route because I just think as a society, let's try something conservative. Let's try the lifestyle changes, you know, like putting somebody on a statin. I know it's a whole nother topic, but putting somebody on a statin for the rest of your life because of something that you're eating on a daily basis, most likely, um, like that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And so at least de- trying but, something.
2: But devil's advocate for a second is that we live in a society where people just want a pill. Right. They want, we have, I mean, technology, agriculture, electricity, I Mm -hmm. mean, we've had some amazing technologic advances and inventions in our life, but unfortunately it's made us live in a world where we can just pick up our phone and order food. And it comes to our front door. I mean, we've become just incredibly lazy and some people Mm -hmm. just want a pill. They don't want to do the work. That sounds awful. (laughs)
0: It's the quick fix. I mean, Drew can tell you, you know, with, with the workout program, like he's big on the strength side, but everybody just wants to get the strength now. Well, it's not mm-hmm. a now process. Right, Drew?
1: Oh, exactly. I mean, I, I yeah. just finished our, our summer program for our guys and guys are already looking, you know, two, three months from now, like into the program. I'm like, quit focusing on that, you know, focus on what you have ahead of you, you know, this week, this day and quit focusing on, you know, two, three weeks in advance.
2: Well, and that's why health and, you know, performance and, a, you know, sports and things like that, it's, it's a status symbol because it's only given to people that put in the work, you know, it's not something you can go buy on the, on the shelf at Walmart. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly.
1: I kind of want to switch gears a little bit and we were talking about, um, lifestyle changes and I, I want to probably hit, hit something, you know, being an OBGYN, um, probably something you deal with a lot. You we'll talk about birth control a little bit. So, um. I actually have um, probably something you could explain. So my fiance actually just got off birth control. She was on it from 11 years old until 22. So she got on it because she was having intense period cramping. So it was pain management at 11 years old. And at 22, she has had her gallbladder taken out and she has liver adenomas. So kind of what leads to that. Um is that birth control related? Is it diet? And and kind of kind of explain some of the long-term consequences from birth control.
2: Yeah. So here we are again with you know technological advances. It's like (laughs) there's always a trade-off. Okay. There's always two sides. So um you know birth control is great because in America 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. So it's great for that purpose and that purpose only, right. Right. To prevent pregnancy. The unfortunate part is that, you know, there's, it takes two people to make a baby and most of the options available, uh, are the burden is on, is on women, right. Um, there are some applications in medicine for birth control for reasons outside of contraception and preventing pregnancy. And one of those can be abnormal uterine bleeding or what we call dysmenorrhea, which is like painful periods. Things like endometriosis, postpartum, or excuse me, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and the reason that these apply in these situations is because if you're not trying to get pregnant, then you don't really need to have your menstrual cycle, right? So you can turn off the menstrual cycle with the use of exogenous hormones. So what is in birth control pills and patches and vaginal rings? Um, what we call these combined contraceptives is they have ethanol estradiol, which is a synthetic estrogen. And then they contain some form of a synthetic progestin. So a a progesterone. So you basically give the patient estrogen and progesterone, the pituitary gland in the brain um, thinks that that it it all works in a feedback loop. And so if you give enough, then it kind of turns off the light switch upstairs and it, and it turns off the, the brain from stimulating your own ovaries. That can be good for some people that have Really heavy bleeding or really painful periods. But the unfortunate part is, like I said, everything comes with a trade off. So when you're giving ethanol estradiol, which is way more potent than 17 beta estradiol, which is what our body makes, um, that medicine goes down into the stomach and it gets absorbed and it goes straight to the liver. We call this first pass metabolism. So um, it goes to the liver and it has to get metabolized and it goes through a couple different phases of. Metabolism within the liver, and then it has to be excreted. So estrogen is a hormone. Like I, I, I like to call it, use it and lose it. So you want to use it, and then you want to get rid of it. You don't want to reabsorb it and continue to use it. That can create um, excessive amounts of estrogen in the body. And some people do this with their own estrogen. So I'm not going to say it's just from from birth control pills, but um, that estrogen goes to the liver, and in these pathways where it has to be metabolized or detoxified. Um, there are a lot of nutrients that are required for it to go through this. uh, I like to think it like a proverbial bathtub. So you've got this bathtub and you have a faucet going into the bathtub and it's not only estrogen coming into the bathtub, but you've got caffeine and you've got the food you're eating and you've got other, any other thing that has to be metabolized, the liver, that's what it does. And so you're filling up this bathtub and the bathtub can only drain so fast. And when you have nutrient deficiencies and you're not sleeping well, and you're not taking care of yourself, the the drain can get clogged. And some people also have different genetic susceptibilities. So some people's drains, drain really fast. And some people's drains drain really slow. And so, when we're looking at each individual patient, they're all going to respond differently to medications, especially you know things like birth control pills. Um, and so, uh, in this particular situation, I want to you know, uh, it's hard knowing the whole situation, right? I haven't seen mm-hmm. your your partner, but um, in general, birth control pills increase the risk of gallbladder disorders, increase the risk of liver adenomas um they increase the risk of nutrient deficiencies because they can burn through more zinc selenium and magnesium uh that can drag on the thyroid because it increases thyroid binding globulin it can increase sex hormone binding globulin and decrease your free testosterone um so although it might help your periods it might prevent your pregnancy there's always a trade-off to the use of of these types of medications um there are other options so there's progesterone only birth control pills that don't contain estrogen Um, there are non-hormonal options. Now we're starting to see more of them. There's a non-hormonal IUD there's, um, um, vaginal like gels and things like that. Um, there's natural family planning, there's barrier methods like condoms, there's permanent forms like vasectomies and tubals. So there's lots of options when it comes to, you know, preventing pregnancy, but for the use of abnormal periods and things like this, they are used sometimes for that reason, but it always comes with a trade-off.
0: If you dig a little bit deeper into like the nutrient deficiencies associated. I mean, is that something where you're recommending patients just clean up the diet if they're going to take these um, contraceptives or, you know, is it something where you're recommending like supplementation?
2: Yeah. So we know that the nutrient requirements are higher for a female that is taking a combined oral contraceptive. So due to the need to metabolize the estrogen and progestins, um, you need more B vitamins, you need more zinc, selenium and magnesium, you need more vitamin uh, C and E because they cause a small amount of oxidative stress. So you need more antioxidants. Now you should be able to get all of these things in your diet. But like I said, no one is perfect. And when you're talking about, I can't remember, he said, maybe she was like 11. And we were talking about, you know, a teenage kid, a college girl. I mean, I just told you guys what my diet was. like. <laughs> it was like eating Taco mm-hmm. Bell on the weekends and counting goldfish crackers right? These aren't super nutrient dense diets. And so um, I actually worked with a company a number of years ago, making a a companion supplement for people that were taking combined oral contraceptives. Um, And we were in the midst of trying to do a study on it, but you, there are higher nutrient requirements. And the problem is, is that when these patients are on these medications for five, 10, 15 plus years, and then at some point in their life, they want to get pregnant they come off of these medications in this nutrient depleted state. And now they want to get pregnant and grow a human. So you can see, you know, kind of the problem here um, that we're faced with. And like I said, there might be a time and place for the use of these things, but patients really should try to increase the nutrient density of their diet. Um, or supplementation is sometimes appropriate.
1: So would would you consider this to be something that um maybe maybe needs to be taken accountability from the, um, women, woman's um, perspective and also from the, um, doctor's perspective as well, or, you know,
2: where, yeah, I mean, I think there's, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of medical providers that don't understand this concept that we're talking about. You know, um, I think that we as providers think that medicines may be more benign than, than they really are. Um, but this goes for all medications. So I don't want to just pick on birth control pills. I mean, you know, you brought up statins, for instance, they can deplete your Co- CoQ10, you know, they can really deplete your CoQ10 um, blood pressure medications. Many of those also deplete your magnesium and, and other things. I mean, there's any medication
0: that is used
2: requires additional nutrients in the body. And so, and that's the problem is you're probably using this medication for a reason because you have something wrong with you, right? Right. <laughs> And now mm-hmm. you're just pouring like kerosene on the fire. And so right. it might make the symptoms better, but that's why integrative and functional medicine and things like that, really trying to figure out why you have that problem in the first place. Like for instance, if you have painful, heavy periods,
0: trying to figure that
2: out first, um, is, is probably the most important step. Not that we can't use these medications short-term to improve quality of life, but it's never a long-term fix.
0: Exactly. All right. So moving on to you know keeping along with the nutrition um, a little bit and going along the medication route, I hear a lot of patients coming into us saying they have PCOS. PCOS, I don't know if it was something I just didn't learn about through school or if all of a sudden in the medical world patients seem to, you know, be on social media reading more about it. Because I've kind of heard you talk about it. You know, they they may go to the ER, find assist on an ovary that's, that's normal, the normal cyst, it's the, it's the lot of cyst. Can you talk about PCOS and and how diet relates to that?
2: Well, here's the confusion. Um, PCOS, which is a horrible name uh, for the condition um, is very much at the root cause related to insulin resistance at the level of the ovary. But here's the problem is that insulin resistance is very prevalent in our society. Almost 80% of people have Mm -hmm. insulin resistance. So you may see women out there who are dealing with insulin resistance that think they have PCOS and they really don't. So PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome is, it requires two out of three diagnostic criteria. So the first one is that you have to be either not having periods or missing periods. And that's called oligomenorrhea or amenorrhea. And that basically means that they are not ovulating. And the absence of the periods, I went three months, I didn't have a period. My period only comes every six months or I'm not having periods at all. That is one diagnostic criteria. The second one is hyperandrogenism. And this either means that clinically you have hyperandrogenism. So this means you have like acne, you have really dark hair growth. It's on your face. It might be, you know, on the chest, around the breast, it might come down through the stomach, abnormal um, pubic hair distribution, like out onto the legs, Um, or we checked your blood and you have high levels of androgens like DHEA and testosterone. So you have to have one of those. And then the third one is polycystic ovaries on ultrasound. Now, this is a very specific finding, a very specific way that the ovaries look when we say polycystic ovaries. It doesn't mean that you had a cyst on your ovary. The ovaries job every single month in a menstruating woman is to make a cyst. It's actually to make multiple cysts and it will stimulate these little tiny cysts until one of them becomes a dominant follicle. One of them gets ovulated. And then if you don't get pregnant, they regress and it starts all over the next month. So it's the ovary's job every single month to make cysts and to make a big cyst. And then it turns into a corpus luteum. So just because you had a cyst on your ovary does not mean you have PCOS. There's a very specific way that these ovaries look. It's a bunch of tiny little cysts around the outside. They call it like string of pearls and the general ovarian volume, the size of the ovary tends to be enlarged. So you have to have two out of these three. So you might be missing periods and have dark hair growth you might be menstruating regularly and you have polycystic ovaries on ultrasound and high testosterone on your labs um, and everything in between. So it's just two out of these three criteria. And so some people come into my office being told they have PCOS and I do this workup and I'm just like, yeah, I'm not convinced. Um, Mm -hmm. But but it is at the root cause a, a problem with insulin resistance at the level of the ovary. Not all of these patients have what we call peripheral insulin resistance, but at the level of the ovary, what's happening is this insulin resistance is driving up testosterone. Testosterone um, is going out into the body. It's causing the, the hirsutism problems that they're experiencing. And then it's getting peripherally converted into estrogen. And this high amount of testosterone and estrogen is inhibiting, um, uh, the feedback from the, from the pituitary gland and they're not ovulating. And when they don't ovulate, they don't make progesterone. So it's kind of this vicious, vicious cycle of high androgens, high estrogen, lack of progesterone. So these patients have heavy periods when they do have a period, they have infertility, they have depression, um, they have trouble losing weight. Um, they have a lot of problems. And then eventually over time, it does convert into peripheral insulin resistance. And they're at way increased risk of metabolic disease, diabetes, heart disease, endometrial cancers, breast cancers. And so it's a big deal if you have it, um, because their, their long-term risks are real, but insulin resistance is also so prevalent. So you have to kind mm-hmm. of tease out which one, you know, which one this is. Um, right. and so in these situations, you know, um, I like to check fasting glucose and insulin levels in these patients. I like to get a hemoglobin A1C, I like to get a fasted lipid panel, I want to know what their blood pressure is. And then I want to know what their body composition is because these patients tend to have more visceral fat. Um, and, and like I said, increased risk of, of metabolic disease. So just cause you have a cyst on your ovary doesn't mean you have PCOS. <laughs> Excellent.
0: So
1: what are the, what are the steps that you'd be taking to treat either the insulin resistance or the PCOS, whatever, you know, it comes yeah. back and you find.
2: So most of these patients who come in, um, if they're not trying to get pregnant, they get placed on birth control pills now like I said, it does kind of cover up the issue. You know, it's not really addressing the lifestyle uh, factors that could, that could improve their condition, but it does help them. And let me explain how is if you have high uh, total testosterone and you put a patient on a birth control pill that will increase sex hormone binding globulin, and it will bind up some of the free testosterone. So it does help bring down their percent of free testosterone, which can improve their acne doesn't tend to improve the dark hair growth, but it does tend to improve their acne. So that can be one thing. It also protects their uterus because in these women who have excessive amounts of estrogen and a relative lack of progesterone, um, this thickened, thickened lining is not only causing heavy periods, but it increases their risk of hyperplasia and endometrial cancers. So in these patients, you want to make sure that you're giving them progesterone every three to four months, or they're on an oral contraceptive or pill or patch or ring basically. So there, so there are medical reasons why they may want to consider the use of exogenous hormones. Um, And and they may need birth control because I'll tell you the first thing that happens with my PCOS patients is I work on diet and lifestyle and exercise and sleep. They suddenly become very fertile. (laughs) So they think that they are infertile because of the PCOS, but they can, they can quickly become fertile. And so you want to have that conversation about whether that's a good time in their life to be, to be Mm -hmm. reproducing. Um, but there, but there can be reasons why they, why they need medicine. There are other ways to treat the acne and hirsutism. So you can treat acne like normal acne, um, the use of topical agents, you know, sometimes oral antibiotics, um, and things like that. But from my perspective, um, everything starts with lifestyle. So I'm asking these patients what they're eating. What do you eat in a typical day? What do you eat in 24 hours? Um, are they eating a lot of processed foods because those are kind of, you know, low, easy things to start pulling out of the diet. What do you drink? Sometimes they're drinking sodas, they're drinking juices, lots of sugary beverages that are worsening the insulin resistance. Then we talk about exercise, you know, are they doing a lot of cardio? Maybe they would benefit more from weightlifting. Um, maybe they're not exercising at all. Maybe we can just start with walking and doing 10,000 steps a day. Then we talk about their sleep because sleep is literally when our body is regenerating and repairing from the stresses of the previous day and trying to get better. Um, we live in a society where we're not sleeping well because we're working crazy, weird shifts. (laughs) Um, we are using caffeine and drinking coffee. We're not getting natural sunlight. We're exposed to a lot of blue light. So a lot of these people are sleeping really poorly and it's, it's worsening their insulin resistance. Um, then we talk about um, other stressors. So, you know, emotional, psychological, spiritual stress, the body, the cells in the body perceive stress all the same way. They don't know if your boss yelled at you, um, or if a bear is coming to eat you and kill you. <laughs> um, it just perceives that as stress. Um, and then the last thing we talk about, um, is, is, you know, where do you work? Maybe there's some influence there. What kind of products are you using on your skin? Maybe they're using tons of endocrine disrupting products. Um, So there's so many little pieces of the puzzle, but for me, the very, very, very first one that we focus on is nutrition. And when you have insulin resistance, the quickest way to reverse insulin resistance is to reduce dietary carbohydrates and replace those calories with more high quality fats and other nutrient dense animal foods and proteins. Um, That's the quickest way to reverse it. And, and there's studies on low carbon ketogenic therapies for PCOS. And in my personal opinion might be, I'm very clearly biased, (laughs) but I used to have PCOS and diabetes. And so I can tell you from personal experience, Mm -hmm. um, that's the quickest way to reverse it. And because of the long-term risks that these patients face, it's not a 30 day plan. It's not a 60 day plan. This is changing the patient's lifestyle completely.
0: So being a ketogenic practitioner, so I I was introduced um, by keto through a good mutual friend of ours, Chris Irvin. So Chris and I actually went to, we actually went to undergrad together. And then I remember, I remember sitting at my parents' dining room table one day, I had just learned about the ketogenic diet and I heard something about bulletproof coffee. And I text Uh, Chris because I saw Chris's post online. I said, do people really put butter in their coffee? And he's like, they do but that's oh, wow. for a whole nother episode. But you know, so being a, a ketogenic practitioner yourself, because I get this question quite a bit, because I've been a proponent of keto during pregnancy. I mean, is, is, are you putting patients on a keto diet before pregnancy, then off during pregnancy and then maybe back during breastfeeding? Or is there certain times that we do don't want to do this? Cause I know that's a common, yeah. common question well- out there.
2: Well, one of the misconceptions of the ketogenic diet is that it's, it's for weight loss. You can get benefits of therapeutic ketosis and not lose weight. Um, you can lose weight on most calorically restricted diets and not get healthier. (laughs) Most things get better when patients get to a normal body fat, but, um, the presence of ketones in the bloodstream, um, they are a powerful cellular signaling molecule So yes, sometimes patients lose weight on a ketogenic diet, but originally the applications of the ketogenic diet were for childhood epilepsy. And we know that the brain really loves ketones because ketones change GABA and glutamate um, ratios in the brain. That's how they prevent seizures. They reduce inflammation through the NLRP3 inflammasome. So for a patient with, you know, let's say an autoimmune condition like psoriasis, um, these things will get better with ketogenic therapy. For patients with insulin resistance or PCOS um, who are wanting to attempt pregnancy, um, like I said, it can rapidly restore their fertility and they might get pregnant. And so thinking about pregnancy nutrition, I mean, really honestly, what is good for a pregnant woman and growing a human is probably good for all of us, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? So um, I get asked a lot about low carbon ketogenic diets in pregnancy. And the real honest answer is we don't have a lot of data. We have a few studies that really scare people away from the thought of, of ketosis in pregnancy. And those are animal mm-hmm. studies really is what they are. But we know from human studies, we know from umbilical cord studies where they basically have taken blood from the baby's umbilical cord and from the mother. And the reason that this is this is interesting to look at is because the blood coming out through the umbilical cord has is coming from the baby, right? So we can get an idea of how many ketones the baby is making. In pregnancy, there are some physiologic shifts that happen that are very different from not being pregnant. So what happens in the first trimester of pregnancy is that the pancreas starts producing about 30% more insulin and you've actually got decent insulin sensitivity in the first trimester. And for any woman that's listening, that's been pregnant before the first trimester can be brutal as far as nausea and, and just lack of appetite, not feeling great, but insulin sensitivity is actually pretty good in the first trimester. And you only need about an extra hundred calories, maybe at most. Um, And so this isn't necessarily a time where you have to worry about therapeutic carb restriction. Women have a lot more um, tolerance to carbohydrates in the first trimester. And I've seen even my low carb patients sometimes who have to add in more carbohydrates in this first trimester. Um, In the second trimester is where we start to see some physiologic insulin resistance start to happen. This is on purpose. This is the body's way of making sure that there is a uh, ready available amount of both glucose and fatty acids available. So in pregnancy, fat and glucose are increased in the bloodstream. There's just this big flow of energy across the placenta into the growing baby. But unfortunately, what can happen is if you come into pregnancy with insulin resistance, and then you create more insulin resistance, it can turn into gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, high blood pressure disorders to pregnancy. And so this is a big deal. So as this insulin resistance develops, then the question is, okay, how many carbohydrates should these women be eating? Well, by the Institute of Medicine recommendations, they mm-hmm. recommend that it, a woman never eat less than 175 carbs per day, uh, which by all means and purposes, that's a pretty low carb diet. Cause there's a lot of women out there eating 200, 300, 400 carbs per day. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you take something out of the diet, you have to replace it with something, and so those calories, if you if you remove carbs, are getting replaced with fat. The Institute of Medicine says there are minimum threshold requirements of fat in in the in the pregnant uh, pregnant woman's diet. There's also minimum threshold levels of protein. But the Institute of Medicine, who says no less than 175 carbs per day, also says that if you have adequate protein and fat intake, the essential number of carbs is zero this is in the same document, right? So then you're left to be more confused. Okay. So you don't need them as long as you eat protein and fat, but you need 175. So that number comes from basically, we do have some organs in our body that need glucose. So our brain, a certain part of our kidney, our red blood cells need a small amount of glucose. Now you can, the reason that they're non-essential for human life, the reason that you could live off zero is because you can make glucose from protein and fat substrates. Mm -hmm. Now, does that mean that zero is the optimal level? Probably not. There's not a real reason to, you know, most people think of the ketosis as like a stressful state, like it's, you know, survival or like starvation mode. Uh, that's probably not true, but our body definitely has the ability to utilize two different fuel sources, glucose and ketones. And we know from these cord blood studies that babies actually start making their own ketones in the third trimester. In pregnant women, it's not uncommon to find them in a low level of ketosis, even if they're eating, car- even if they're eating carbohydrates, because the third trimester is a very catabolic state. So in the first half of pregnancy, it's very anabolic, you're growing, growing, growing. And then in this third trimester, it's very catabolic. It's just breaking down, breaking down fuels. It's digesting your biceps. If you're not eating enough, you know, it's steak. I mean, it's, it's basically ensuring that it has everything it can to push towards this baby. It will take anything from the mother it needs uh, for the 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 placenta and the pregnancy are team fetus. They are not team mom. Okay. <laughs> and every woman that's had a baby is like, yes, it will like literally suck the life out of you. Um, so, so my, my answer to your question is that it is very dangerous to eat too many carbohydrates in pregnancy. We don't really have evidence that it's dangerous to eat too little. As long as you're getting adequate amounts of the nutrients you need, the protein you need and the fat you need, but it really needs to be individualized to the, to the patient because there's so many people coming into pregnancy with insulin resistance and, and it becomes a problem. Not only high blood glucose, but hyperinsulinemia using excessive amounts of insulin to make your blood sugars normal, which we're not testing for at all in any way, shape Mm -hmm. or form still increases the risk of, um, High blood pressure in pregnancy, preeclampsia, and long-term risks to the fetus. So there's something called fetal programming or epigenetic programming that happens. Basically, while your baby's in your tummy, you're literally writing a uh, instruction manual for your baby. You know, for the rest of their life. So this is so important because we're programming our baby for forever um, when they're in our tummies. And so this is really important. There's there are harms to eating too many carbohydrates in pregnancy
0: epigenetics is a fascinating fascinating whole whole new podcast nutrigenomics epigenetics i mean yeah the the thought that even drew and i sitting here before we ever have kids like there's things that we could do to influence that nobody like really thinks about
2: yes even even men even sperm um all of it makes a difference
1: so, so where James asks the nutrition heavy hitter questions, I like to ask the performance questions. So I want to, I, I kind of want to hear your take on exercise and training for women's health in general and for pregnancy and kind of what your take is.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I grew up as an athlete. I was training, uh, I was lifting a lot of weights. I was, a actually you can see this, one of these trophies behind me. I was a two-time lifter of the year at Nebraska, um, When I left the university, I vowed to never lift another weight. I was so indoctrinated by society that it was a very masculine thing, that girls needed to be thin. I hated how large my quads were. Um, I hated how tight my clothes fit when we were training, you know, so many days in the summer really hitting the gym hard and then of course what i found out was that i you know developed these metabolic diseases and i need to start exercising again right yep. well i was a mom so what did i do i went to the to the pure bar class you know kind of like yoga pilates like you know more low intensity and i signed up to run some half marathons so i started running i put a treadmill in my living room and I, uh, nothing changed. <laughs> Not much changed. I, uh, my body composition, I, I wasn't happy with it, you know? And what I realized was I have got to get back to lifting weights. And, you know, what I've realized now is that we really over prescribe exercise and cardio to women. You know, when you go in the gym, what do you see, right? There's like 10,000 cardio machines. It's a lot, mostly women on them. And they're not touching the weights because they're intimidated. They may have never lifted a weight in their life. There's like these big gnarly dudes over there making them scared. Um, And the problem is, is that muscle is an endocrine organ. It is, it's not just about how you look in your muscles. It's not just about the ability to propel you as you walk and go up a flight of stairs and do all the things you wanna do, but it literally sends chemical messages. And when you just do cardio all the time, um, first of all, from maintaining your weight perspective, I mean, you could be on a treadmill for an hour and burn a couple hundred calories, but let's be real, you can eat that pretty quickly. And long bouts of cardio, put more stress on the adrenals. They increase your cortisol. Um, they actually hurt your ability to maintain your lean body mass. So cardio is counterintuitive for a lot of women. They're just doing way too much. They need to just walk more and be more physically active. And if they want to do some, you know, a small amount of like sprint training, hit training, that's fine, but it should be like, I mean, real true hit training or sprint training. I mean, we're talking minutes, minutes of training, not 20, not 30, not 45, not a 60 minute orange theory class. What they really should be doing if they want more bang for their buck is doing weight training. And we've got to get this idea out of our head that weightlifting is masculine, that it's just for men. Um, our bodies as women were designed to do physically difficult things like birth children. Like if you've, you want a hard workout? Come up to labor and delivery with me and watch a woman <laughs> naturally deliver a baby. Like it's it's a physical feat. It's incredible. It's an endurance sport and, you know, a sprint sport. It's it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um and so, you know, women are not fragile. We we are, you know, designed to do physically hard things and I think that there's more to be learned with resistance training than just, you know, growing your lean body mass, which is important. I think it teaches women you know, resiliency and fortitude and showing up for yourself. And trust me, I have never seen a woman that lifts weights that lacks confidence. You know, so, uh, you know, I have three daughters. This is near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, I think women de- need to be doing more weight training. They really do. It, I mean, and at different decades of our life, we could talk about why it's important, you know, as women enter the next phase of their life after they've had their children into perimenopause and menopause, when we lose our estrogen. When we lose our hormones that we've been making for years and years and years, now we're more at risk of losing our muscle, losing our bones, losing our brain, getting cancer, getting heart disease. And weightlifting can be something that can help mitigate that. So if they weren't doing it for the first 50 years of their life, then that's a real problem, you know, as they come into these new different challenges with each decade of their life.
0: So let, let's let just continue piggybacking off of that. Let's talk about your new book. Um, You, when you, pointed to your trophy over there i I saw a glimpse of it so for those not familiar dr seaman has a new book called hard to kill um and so you know you've you've alluded to a lot of the concepts you've you've alluded to the five pillars of health which if if the listeners read your book they'll understand the five pillars you basically talked about them without saying pillar one pillar two pillar three etc yeah so can you just tell the listeners what the hard to kill mindset is and and where they can get the book
2: Yeah. So, you know, the book came from a place where I am a doctor, I am a physician, but the real story is I'm a human and I am just like my patients. And I have gone through the same struggles that my patients have gone through. And what happens when you are in a deep, dark place, maybe you have a hundred pounds to lose, or maybe you don't, maybe you just have prediabetes and hypothyroidism. Where we are in our lives right now is tied to our identity in our brain, our internal language, our internal hard drive about who we are. And when I um, started to go through these health struggles in 2015, 2016, there was a disconnect between who I really felt like I was and how I was externally, right? Here I am. I'm like overweight. I've got prediabetes. I've got hypothyroidism. I'm supposed to be a doctor. I'm supposed to be the example for my patients. This isn't who I am. And I didn't realize it at the time, but my social media is Dr. Fit and Fabulous. And that kind of became this new internal language for me about who I was. And when you change this internal language, because we've studied this, we've studied people who have lost massive amounts of weights and kept it off, you know, versus, uh, uh, you know, losing hundred pounds and gaining it all back. And yes, there's a level of discipline. There's a, a level of grit. There's a level, but it is it is very much tied to their identity. If you believe that you are a 400 pound person, even if you lose hundred pounds and get down to 300 pounds, that internal language drives action. Action drives outcomes. So you will just continue to perpetuate behaviors of a 400 pound person. Mm-hmm. So hard to kill what it is, is it's a language. It's a language inside your mind that you are hard to kill. I mean, it it seems so self-explanatory, but it talks about, the book talks about, you know, creating this language inside your mind about who you really are, and then using the five pillars to support that and to help make that, you know, uh, those outcomes happen, right? Because we can Mm -hmm. dream all day, right? Right. We can come up with these wild fantasies about who we are. Like, I'm a millionaire. I'm the president (laughs) of the United States, right? But how do you make these things happen? But It's the foundational principles that I myself used, um, to restore my health and the foundational principles that I think my patients should use to prevent chronic disease. Um, and I touch a little bit about why I feel like medicine really is not going to help people in the long run. And we have to do this, you know, on a, on an individual level. Um, and there's an academy online that goes with it because the book is great, but it's really like, I wrote it so that my 12 year old daughter could understand it. But the academy is great because community is important. Humans, humans die in isolation. Humans cannot do this by themselves. You cannot do this by, I don't care what you want to accomplish. I don't care what it is you're thinking right now. You absolutely cannot do it by yourself. You need people to support you. And the Academy provides that community. It also provides access to me quarterly Q and A's and things like that, that, uh, that I can help people along the way. Um, but, uh, I'm super excited about it. It's crazy. I just never thought I'd be on this pathway, but, uh, you know, God is amazing and leads us in whatever direction. And, um, this is, this is my calling. That's for sure.
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I've been doing a lot of traveling recently and, You know, I always wondered, like when you watch the the Today Show or Good Morning America, they always have somebody's book there and they always like reference something. But then I wonder, like, do they really read it? So I've gotten really big into audiobooks recently. So I just wanted you to know it kept me thoroughly engaged for an entire trip across country. So I have the audiobook and for the for the listeners out there, I would highly recommend it. Um, So being cognizant of time, we are about out of time. So I just want to wrap up with one more question. Um, so kind of going along with the with the cross-country trip. So I had gone to West Virginia. My sister just graduated from West Virginia University as a PA. So she's going to be starting her, she's going to be an internal medicine hospitalist um, coming up. So just for her, I mean, really, you know, I'm trying to, to, you know, put this question like towards her because we were chatting last night. Um, but for any practitioner listening, what is something that they can begin, you know, in their journey to, to patient care, what is something that they can implement after listening to this podcast tomorrow that would have an impact in, in their patients' lives?
2: Well, I think that, you know, we have to have continuing education as medical Mm -hmm. providers, nurses, PAs, PTs, all of us. Right. So I think if you're interested in really helping your patients, you need to think about doing more education in these foundational principles, read and understand that why their lack of sleep might be contributing to what, what you're trying to treat, why their poor diet is contributing, um, you know, exercise for me, you know, it's about being an example. So, you know, I don't want to call people to the rug, but I think if there's any healthcare practitioner listening, you know, we need to be the example for our patients, you know, about how to live our lives. And to, we, I mean, we should be the billboard of health and wellness. And I think that is really lacking too, in medicine. We're very burnt out. We're working bajillions of hours. We're being squeezed tighter and tighter and tighter by insurance companies and and yeah. governing bodies, um, you know. And it's really sad. And we need healers. We need healers in the world. I don't want people to not go into medicine because they feel like it's so broken. I want people to come into medicine and I want people to fix it. So for anybody out there listening, especially the young ones, you know, I get messages on Instagram and things like that of people that are like, oh my God, I love what you're doing. How do I take that path? And um and we need we need more people. We need all the voices. That's
0: amazing.
1: Yeah. We, again, we really appreciate, you know, you coming on the podcast and, um, you know, hopefully we can, you know, have you on again at some point.
2: Yeah, this is wonderful. I feel like we can talk about the
0: book for a whole podcast, just go through all the pillars. (laughs) So, so thank you very much for, for joining us and, uh, we'll be talking soon.
2: All right. Thank you guys. And go big red drew. (laughs) Go Hawks. (laughs) Before we wrap up, we wanna take
0: a minute to talk about the Council on Nutrition. I've been a member of the council for five years now, and we've actually been published in their peer-reviewed journal, Nutritional Perspectives. The symposium that they put on is one of my favorite things to attend each year, and it's a great asset for getting my continuing education credits, meeting other professionals, and it's great for students and new practitioners like Drew. The Council on Nutrition is available to everybody from practitioners to our listeners and patients. You can find more information about joining and getting access to the annual symposium, publications, events, and more at www.councilonnutrition.com. This episode has also been brought to you in part by Iowa Performance Institute. Is starting a new workout routine overwhelming to you?
1: Looking to make your workouts more efficient? Get the most out of your workouts with Iowa Performance Institute's personalized fitness planning. Our team of experts will create a program that's tailored to your body and goals, so you can achieve the results you want. Whether you're looking to build muscle, lose weight or improve athletic performance, we have the knowledge and experience to help you succeed. With our adaptive online practice and cutting edge training techniques, you'll be on your way to a healthier, happier you in no time. Invest in your health and schedule your free consultation today at performanceiowa.com. Wow, James, that was an action packed episode with some great knowledge and advice from Dr. Seaman.
0: Oh, it definitely was, Drew. It was great having her on today. I really enjoyed the fact that,
1: you know, we were able to discuss some personal questions, which gave me some answers. And hopefully, you know, she provided some answers for some of our listeners, both, you know, the general public and the practitioners who listen and provided some answers to some women's
0: health. Oh, definitely. You know, the women's health piece was really great. But for me, it was just hearing how other providers and other specialties are utilizing nutrition and and how that plays a role in in their respected, you know, profession. What was your big takeaway from today's podcast?
1: Yeah, I I feel like my biggest takeaway is the fact that she's a living, breathing example of what she's teaching. You know, she discussed her struggles and conditions and how she progressed through her journey. And I'm sure, you know, she's very relatable to all of her patients. You know, how about you, James?
0: Yeah, for me, I really loved when she started talking about PCOS and uh, the infertility issues. So this is actually something that uh, I've seen several times in practice. I've seen it twice. So, you know, patients come with PCOS, um, infertility issues. They just think they're completely infertile. You know, they make those dietary changes. They make those lifestyle changes and then quickly find out, nope, I'm very fertile. Um, So the fact that I've seen that twice in practice myself, um, obviously I, you know, I would expect her to see it a lot more in the fact that she is, you know, that was just really great. Definitely. So if you want to learn more about any of the products or resources mentioned in today's podcast, make sure you check out the show notes for links. Drew, I hope you have a great week, my guy. I look forward to our, our next recording.
1: Yeah. And for everyone out there, remember new podcast episodes will be released weekly and we'll drop on Spotify, Apple podcasts, and more every Monday with special behind the scenes clips shared on our social channels throughout the week.
0: We appreciate everyone tuning in today. This has been the Nutrition on a Mission podcast, a podcast of the ACA Council on Nutrition. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at Nutrition on a Mission pod and follow Drew and myself at Iowa Performance Institute, also on Instagram for updates on our guest and episode releases.
1: The views and comments expressed are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the ACA Council on Nutrition
0: or the American Chiropractic Association.